Okay, Revelation chapter 20, we took a break last week for our family service as we were leading up to Harvest Fair, but this morning uh, we have got just three Sundays left in the book of Revelation. That's kind of hard to believe, but we're at a point where Armageddon is over, uh, the great tribulation is gone, the beast and the false prophet have been cast into the lake of fire, Jesus has returned to the earth. Um, and like I said, there's a lot that we need to look at. Originally, my plan had been to break this chapter up into two Sundays, but we're out of time. We need to finish before Thanksgiving. So uh, let's jump right into verse 1 of chapter 20, shall we? John says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, verse 2, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. John says he cast him into the bottomless pit, verse 3, and shut him up. Oh, praise God. And set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more until the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. A couple of things. If, as we've studied the book of Revelation, you've ever wondered who the dragon is, uh, we're told right here in this passage that the dragon is Satan, the devil, that serpent of old, reaching all the way back to the very first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3, where the serpent deceives Eve. Another thing to note, take note of, I think this is interesting, who is it that finally locks Satan up? Is it God? Is it Jesus? No, it's not even Michael the archangel. It's, it's just some anonymous angel, if we can say that, who has this great chain in his hand. This reminds us of something really really important, and that is that Satan is not God's equal. He's not omniscient. He's not omnipresent. He's not omnipotent. He can't be in more than one place at a time. He's not all-knowing. He's not all-powerful, and at the end of the day, it just takes some normal angel to lock him up. There's a passage in the book of Isaiah that seems to imply that when we finally see Satan our reaction is going to be like, that guy? Right? Let me just read you this passage. Okay? How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. That's the devil's actual name, by the way, Lucifer. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations, because you said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the congregation and ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High, yet the Lord says, you shall be brought down to Sheol to the lowest depths of the pit, which is exactly what we're reading about this morning in chapter 20. And then listen to this. Those who see you will gaze at you and say, is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms and made the world a wilderness? I always think about the Wizard of Oz when I read this passage. You know, at first, when Dorothy and her cohorts see the wizard, he's like this huge, powerful, frightening, you know, presence. But then the curtain gets pulled back to reveal this short, balding, nervous little guy. That's all Satan is, right? He's a master deceiver, and he's really good at making us think he's got all this power. But Colossians tells us that on the cross... Jesus disarmed him. He took away his power, and he made a public spectacle of him. You see, Satan thought he was winning on the cross. 
It was Jesus sealing our victory on the cross. And when we see Satan, we're going to be like, that guy looks like Danny DeVito, right? John says he's cast into the bottomless pit, verse 3. He's bound for a thousand years, verse 2, with a great chain, verse 1. And he is finally shut up, as we said in verse 3. And a seal is set on him that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, we read, he must be released for a little while. We'll come back to that thought in just a few moments. Uh, Let's keep reading in verse 4. John says, I saw thrones. And they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then he says, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So who is seated on these thrones? Uh, It could be the 24 elders which would comprise the 12 apostles. We know that Jesus told the 12 apostles in Matthew chapter 19 that in the regeneration, they would sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. In Revelation 3, Jesus promised, to him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne. It could be all of us, those of us who have put our faith in Jesus Christ. That's what I'm inclined to believe. 1 Corinthians 6.3 says, we shall judge angels. 2 Timothy 2 says, if we endure, we shall reign with him. In Revelation 5, we see a crowd of people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation saying, you have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. So the millennium, the 1,000-year reign of Christ on the earth. Milli, meaning thousand in Latin. Annum, meaning years. Milli, annum, the millennium. It's mentioned no less than six times in this one chapter. And that's important because people ask all the time. They say, is the millennium a real thing? And one of the things we've said before about the book of Revelation is that John is typically very good at telling us when he's using a sign or a symbol. He'll say something is like this or like that. But there's none of that language used here. John doesn't describe something like a thousand years. He says it's a 1,000 year period. And it's true, there are differing views on the millennium. It's kind of like the rapture of the church. Um, I'm gonna teach the one that I believe is accurate. Um, It is interesting, David Guzik writes, the early church up until the time of Augustine almost universally accepted an earthly historical reign of Jesus initiated by his return. It was Tychonius in the late 300s who was the first to champion the idea of a spiritualized interpretation of the millennium, saying that the millennium is now, or amillennialism and must be understood as a spiritual reign of Christ, not a literal one. Okay, so that's important to keep in mind as we quickly try to talk about the differing views of the millennium. I mentioned one, amillennialism or amillennialism. Uh, That's the belief that the millennium is now, that we're living in the time of the millennium, so the church age. Then there is postmillennialism, which believes that that the millennium is an era, not a literal thousand years, during which Christ will reign over the earth from a literal and earthly throne, but through the gradual increase of the gospel and its power, 
could change lives. Post-millennialism expects that eventually the vast majority of people will be saved. Increasing gospel success will gradually produce a time in history prior to Christ's return in which faith, righteousness, peace, and prosperity prevail after this Christianization of the world Christ will return and usher the church into their eternal state after judging the wicked. It's called post-millennialism because by its view, Christ returns after the millennialism, after the millennium, the post-millennialism. Um, I think, honestly, all you have to do is look around the world today and ask yourself, do we see an increasing influence of the gospel in bringing about sort of this utopian state? I would say we see anything but that. But again, I'll quote David Guzik on this. He says, the clear teaching of Scripture isn't amillennialism or postmillennialism, but what we would call premillennialism, that Jesus Christ returns to the earth before the millennium, and he will establish it and govern it directly. That's what I believe. And that's what historically the ministry of Calvary Chapel has always taught, because we just saw the return of Jesus in chapter 19. It's a literal return to the earth, and now the millennium is described after that in chapter 20. By the way, there's a lot of things that we know about the millennium from looking at other passages of Scripture. There are about 400 verses in 20 different passages in the Bible that speak about this coming period known as the millennium. So I'm going to read every single one of them. I'm kidding. 400 verses? No way. Dr. David Jeremiah writes, Dwight Pentecost said there, was more, said there is more information in the Bible about the millennium than any other period in Scripture. He said when you start to search for it, there's something about the millennium everywhere you look in the Bible. So, for instance, from Isaiah 2 and Ezekiel 17, we learn that during the millennium, Israel will be the superpower of the world. And Jesus' government will be centered on the Temple Mount. That's where he will reign and rule from. And all the nations of the earth will flow to him to pay him honor. From Isaiah 2, we learn that during the millennium, the citizens of the earth will acknowledge and submit to the lordship of Jesus. It will be a time of perfectly enforced righteousness on the earth. Jesus will rule with a rod of iron. Read that four times in scripture. Also from Isaiah 2, we learn there will be no more war. This is the famous, they'll beat their swords into plowshares pa passage. Uh, there will still be conflicts between individuals and nations, but they will be justly and decisive, decisively resolved by the Messiah quickly. From Isaiah 65, there seems to be a restoration of the types of long lifespans that existed before the flood. My kids are kind of fascinated about this. My kids love to talk about how old Methuselah was. And so we read about during the millennium how a child will die at the age of 100. In Isaiah 11, we learn that the way animals relate to one another and to people will be radically changed. We read about a child being able to lead a lion or a wolf. The danger of predators like cobras and vipers will be gone. <clears throat> from several passages, Isaiah 55, Jeremiah 30, Ezekiel 34, Hosea 3, we learn King David is going to have a very prominent role in the millennium, sort of like Jesus' vice president, we might say. From Ezekiel and Amos, we learn there will be a rebuilt temple 
during the millennium, and there will be temple service reinstated during the millennium. People say, why? Well, you think about when you and I celebrate communion today. When we take the bread and we take the cup, we do so looking back to the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. So during the millennium, there will be a temple and there will be sacrifice offered in the temple, not to save, not to save people, but to look back, to point people back. Everything points to the cross. And so there will be millennial or there will be temple worship in the millennium. Um, from, uh, I already read that one. Another purpose, the, the millennium, one of the purposes is the healing of the planet. Okay, think about how much the earth has gone through by this point in the book of Revelation. A third of the earth has been burned. All the sea life has died. The, the stars have fallen. Every mountain has crumbled. Every island has fled away. That's all got to be restored. Okay, because we don't read about the new earth until next week in chapter 21. And then from passages like the one we're in, we learn that saints in their glorified state will reign and rule with Jesus. Verse 4 says, I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. The last phrase of verse 4 says, they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. That idea is repeated in verse 6. But the rest of the dead, John says in verse 5, did not live again until the thousand years were finished. John says, this is the first resurrection. And then in verse 6, he says, blessed and holy is he, who has his part in the first resurrection. Okay, <clears throat> the Bible clearly teaches that there are two resurrections. In, J in John chapter 5, Jesus said, The hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Daniel refers to a similar, similar idea. He writes, Many who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Now, we're going to see what that means when we reach the end of this morning's chapter. But for now, two resurrections. Let's focus on the first one. When John says in verse 5, this is the first resurrection, don't think of that as a singular event. Like where John is saying, this is the first resurrection. This is more of a statement of summary. You might think of it this way. You might think of John saying, this concludes the first resurrection. Donald Barnhouse said, it must be emphasized that the phrase in chapter 20 covering the first resurrection is a retrospect looking back over all three phases of the resurrection. The first resurrection has an order to it. I'll show you what I mean by looking at a couple of passages. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul is again expounding on the idea of the resurrection. And he says, this is key, Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, that's Adam, by man, meaning Jesus, also came the resurrection. As in Adam all die, even so in Christ all will be made alive. But then listen to this, verse 23, each one in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ's at his coming. And verse 24, then comes the end. Jesus was the first 
person to ever be resurrected. Okay, sometimes people say, well, what about Lazarus? Lazarus was not resurrected. Lazarus was resuscitated. Lazarus was raised back up to life in the same physical body to die again. That's resuscitation. Resurrection is what happened to Jesus. He was raised up in a new body, a glorified body, never to die again. And Jesus was the first person to have ever been resurrected. That's why Paul calls him the first fruits. And I love this idea, that word in the Greek, it literally means entrance fee. One commentator writes, according to Leviticus 23, the Jewish offering of first fruits brought one sheaf of grain to represent a larger coming harvest. The resurrection of Jesus represents a larger coming resurrection. He is the first fruits of our resurrection, our entrance fee. He paid our admission to the larger resurrection. And so in order for us to be resurrected, Jesus had to go first to essentially pave the way to make our resurrection possible. Now, there's an obscure little verse in Matthew chapter 27, you may remember it, that talks about how at the time of Jesus' resurrection, it says, graves were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And they went down into the holy city and appeared to many. And because of where it falls in the narrative, it sounds like that happens when the veil in the temple is torn and Jesus is still hanging on the cross because technically Jesus isn't resurrected until chapter 28. Okay, but listen to the whole passage. This is what it says. The veil of the temple was torn, the earth quaked and the rocks were split and graves were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the graves, listen to this carefully, after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Why is that an important detail? Because these people could not have been raised up into new life until Jesus was. He is the first fruits of the resurrection. Now, after he was raised, yes, all those who had died in faith believing that a Messiah would come, were also resurrected. My point is this reinforces the idea that there is an order to the first resurrection. Christ the first fruits, afterward those who are Christ that is coming, and then comes the end. So when John says this morning in verse 5, this is the first resurrection, that is a statement that looks back, all the way back, to the resurrection of Jesus and those who came out of the graves when he was resurrected. And it takes into account all the saints who have died over the ages, even those who became Christians during the great tribulation. And he says, this is the first resurrection. It's a statement of summary. It's a statement of span and order. John Walvoord writes, the first resurrection is not an event, but an order of resurrection, beginning with Jesus and including all the righteous who were raised from the dead before the millennium begins. But the rest of the dead, John says, did not live again until the thousand years were finished. So verse six, blessed and holy is he who has his part in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him 
a thousand years. Now, quickly, some people ask, who are we going to reign and rule over during the millennium? Well, let's remember, there will be people who survive the Great Tribulation. Um, if nothing else, there's the 144,000, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel who are sealed specifically to serve during and survive through the Great Tribulation. We see them first in chapter 7, then again at the end of the tribu Tribulation in chapter 14. But there will be others, too, who during the Great Tribulation will not have accepted the mark of the beast, and because of the limited time span of only seven years of the Great Tribulation, they will not yet have been martyred. Those people may enter the millennium. So Kevin, what do you mean they may enter the millennium? Well, do you remember the passage in Matthew chapter 25 about the sheep and the goats? Okay, some people mistakenly interpret this passage. They believe that passage is about salvation. This is a passage and a judgment about moral worthiness and whether or not someone will be deemed righteous to enter into the millennium. One commentator writes, there may be as many as 3 billion people or more still remaining on the earth after Jesus returns in power to the end, to end the great tribulation. It is fair to ask what happens with these people. The judgment of nations in Matthew 25 answers that question. So the idea here is that the unworthy person will be sent to damnation, but the worthy person will enter the millennium. I'm just going to read to you some, some verses. I'm not reading every verse just in the interest of time, but it's in Matthew 25. You don't have to look there. You can look it up later. We'll put the verses for you on the big screen. I'll start in verse 31. Jesus says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, he will sit on the throne, and all the nations will be gathered before him. Joel, in the Old Testament, refers to this as the valley of decision. And Jesus will separate them from one another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. Verse 33, he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. But he will say to those on his left, the goats, depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And these will go away, verse 46, into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into everlasting life. It's called the judgment of nations. So there will be people who survive the great tribulation and who are allowed to enter the millennium. And those people may get married and begin to procreate and have children and repopulate the planet. In fact, in just a few verses, we're going to read that by the end of the millennium, the earth has a huge population again. But during the millennium, people will still have an opportunity to be saved the same way that you and I are saved today, and that is by putting their faith in Jesus Christ. And there will be people who choose to put their faith in Christ, but we'll see by the end of the millennium, there will be people who will choose to reject Jesus Christ as their Savior, which is really hard to imagine, but we're going to see it in just a few verses. Uh, let's keep reading. Verse 7, John writes, Now when the thousand years have expired, 
Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them to battle whose number is as the sand of the sea. And they went up, verse 9, on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. So it's not really a battle at all, right? Uh, first of all, this reference to Gog and Magog is not the same occasion we looked at just a few weeks ago in Ezekiel 38 and 39. By the way, if you haven't had a chance to check out that Bible study, I always encourage people to go back and listen to what we've taught. It, this had to have been a timely message because in just the past couple of weeks, this has gotten over 7,000 views. So people are interested in what's going on in the world, and the Bible has answers. That's why I'm constantly telling you guys, share the stream. Send these messages to your friends, to your family. We live in a time, man, where we have the freedom to put out the message of God's word on the internet for anybody to hear. Take advantage of it, guys. We need to be using those resources to get the word of God out. But when we studied that passage in Ezekiel 38 and 39, we noted a couple of key differences between that passage and this one in Revelation chapter 20. For instance, in the Ezekiel passage, the subject of the attack is the nation of Israel. In Revelation 20, the subject of the attack is the saints and the holy city. In Ezekiel 38 and 39, the attack happens after the Jews are regathered to their own lands. And after the battle, they take the weapons and they burn them for a thousand years. In Revelation 20, the attack happens after the thousand-year reign of Christ. So here's the question. Why are they referenced the same way? Like, isn't that confusing? Why would God do that? I don't know. It's, it's like, why did God pick to put Elijah right next to Elisha, right? It's like, I always get them confused. But here's the deal. If we were to say to somebody today, that person is a real Judas. Okay, we would know what that meant, right? Now, we wouldn't think that what somebody was saying was that they were the real, literal Judas come back to life from the dead. But we would understand by saying that person's a Judas that they have the character and nature of someone who is a betrayer. Okay, the same thing with saying somebody experienced their Waterloo. You know, if you, and it's not the Abba song, right? But <clears throat> for those of you in the room who get that reference. But Waterloo was this decisive failure of Napoleon, right? In fact, dictionary.com defines Waterloo as to encounter one's ultimate obstacle and be defeated by it. So we understand the idea of a term being used to recall something else. That's what John's doing. For all intents and purposes, by referring to this last final rebellion of Satan as Gog Magog, he's basically saying Satan's up to his old tricks. He's doing what he's always done. But there is something else to take note of here. Okay, I mentioned how we would come back to the idea at the end of verse 3 where it says that after these things, Satan must be released for a little while. Verse 8 tells us that it's to go out and deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth and lead them in a final rebellion against God. So here, 
we find out one of the main purposes of the millennium. It is to prove, follow me on this, it is to prove once and for all that man's tendency to sin is not, as some would suggest, the result of our environment or our upbringing or our circumstances. These people will have just lived for a thousand years in the physical presence of Jesus Christ who will reign with perfect justice. And yet when given the opportunity, they will choose to rebel against him. Man's problem is not his environment. Man's problem is his heart. We are born with a sin nature. Now, you and I during this time, we're in our glorified state, right? We're not going to be sinning anymore. The other day, one of my boys said, Dad, what are you looking forward to most in heaven? And I was like, oh, man, I got to think about this. And he's like, how many? Well, I mean, think about all the things that we're going to get to experience. And, but then it, it hit me. I said, you know what, Kaysen? I'm just going to be looking forward to never sinning again. Don't you just get tired of sinning? Don't you just get tired of blowing it again and again and again and again? Okay, you and I, during the millennium, we're in our glorified state. We're not going to sin. But the people who survive the Great Tribulation and who go into the millennium and begin to procreate, they will still be born with that sin nature. And so they'll be given an opportunity to decide, am I going to put my faith in Jesus or am I going to rebel against Jesus? And this final rebellion of Satan proves conclusively that even if you were to put man in a perfect environment, he would still choose to rebel. One commentator writes, the reign of the Messiah will not change the heart of man. The millennium reveals the depths of man's sin nature. Some believe that man is basically good, and deep down, he really wants God's righteous rule. Many believe man is innocent and corrupted by bad environment. But the millennium answers this question before the great judgment. Then we read in verse 10, the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, hallelujah, where the beast and the false prophet are, not were, they're still there after a thousand years being tormented. And they are tormented day and night forever and ever. And then John says in verse 11, I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it from whose face the earth and heaven fled away and there was, no, there was found no place for them. That's okay. There'll be a new heaven and a new earth next week. John says, and I saw the dead, verse 12, small and great, standing before God and books were opened. And then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to their works by the things written in the books. Now, back in chapter 10, we went into all the different books that are spoken of in the Bible. There are several of them. We don't have time to mention them all today, but if you're interested to do a deep dive, go back and look at our study. It was called an interesting interlude of Revelation chapter 10. But there does seem to be a distinction between the book of life and some other books. Because in verse 12, John says, 
books were opened, and then another book was opened, which is the book of life. By the way, this seems to recall something Daniel said in Daniel chapter 7. In writing about the last days, he says, I watched until thrones were put in place and the Ancient of Days was seated. He writes, a thousand thousands ministered to him. The court was seated and books, plural, were opened. And John says, the dead were judged according to the things written in the books. Joseph Seiss said, many human beings have lived and died of whom the world knows nothing. But the lives they lived, the deeds they wrought, are written where the memory of them cannot perish. No one has breathed Earth's atmosphere whose career is not traced at full length in the books of eternity. Warren Wiersbe adds, there are books of mankind's works which are insufficient to save anyone, but necessary for determining an unbeliever's punishment in hell. Now, there are people. In fact, I would say this, there are a lot of Christians that the idea of this, this freaks them out, right? This is kind of what people think of when they think of Judgment Day. It's either this or the second Terminator film, right? Which, let's face it, it was the best one out of all of them, right? Uh, now, it's true, Hebrews 9.27 says, it is appointed for men to die once, and after this, the judgment. But notice something about the verses we're reading in chapter 20. I'm going to read them again. See if you can pick up on it, and yes, I'm going to add the emphasis to make this super easy. In verse 12, John says, I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened, and the dead were judged according to the things written in the books. Verse 13, the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged each according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire, verse 14, this is the second death. What's the emphasis in these passages? Death, right? The dead. This judgment is for those who never placed their faith in Jesus Christ. We just read at the end of verse 14, this is the second death. But if you let your eyes go back earlier in the chapter to verse 6, we read, blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Guys, that's you and me. Right? And it says, over such the second death has no power. These last few verses of Revelation chapter 20 do describe a judgment, but it is a judgment of the dead. It's the resurrection to condemnation that Jesus talked about. By the way, if you're wondering where these people have been all this time, right? You figure these are people who have died. It's talking about people who are who are in the sea and in Hades, and there's a millennium, thousand years go by, and now they're finally standing before God. Where have they been all this time? Well, here's where I encourage you to go back and listen to a previous Bible study we did called Hell is for Real, because we talked all about the difference between hell and Hades and Sheol and Gehenna and the pit. And it's important to know the difference between those things. All these folks have been in Hades. They haven't yet been cast into the lake of fire, which is typically what we mean when we talk about hell. I'll let you go find that study on YouTube. It's actually a little bit of a misnomer to even call this a judgment, though, because you'll notice in verse 12 that the people are standing. 
right? David Guzik, once again, he writes, this is not a trial, the facts are in. This is the sentencing of someone who is already condemned. Those who stand before the throne have nothing to say. John Walvoord writes, the standing position means they are now about to be sentenced. Now, the Bible does describe a judgment for believers. Okay, this is why people sometimes get a little freaked out. Because I think that they think it's this judgment. This is not the judgment that if you're a believer in Christ, this is not the judgment that you and I are going to have to face. So I'm going to read to you a couple of passages. 2 Corinthians 5 says, We make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to the Lord, because we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Romans 14 says, we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. As it is written, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue confess. So then each of us shall give an account of himself to God. Both of these passages mention the same idea. It's the judgment seat of Christ. Sometimes we call it the mercy seat. Ergo, why I asked Kayla to sing that song a few moments ago. It's a perfect setup for this passage. In the Greek, this judgment seat of Christ, it's a single word. It's bima, and it literally means step. The bima was a raised platform upon which a magistrate sat to act as a judge. Chuck Smith writes, this is the equivalent to the judge's seat in the Olympics. After each game, the winners would come to the judge's seat to receive crowns for first, second, or third places. Likewise, he says, this is important. The Christian's work will be tested by fire, and he'll be rewarded for those which remain. The judgment seat of Christ is only concerned with a Christian's rewards and position in the kingdom, not with his salvation. One other passage talks about this, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul says, each one's work will become clear because the day will declare it. The fire will test each one's work, of what sort it is. If anyone's work endures, he will receive a reward. But if anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, yet he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Understanding the difference between these judgments is huge. Christians will face a judgment, but it is a judgment of what we've done. It's a judgment of our works, and it's a judgment of why we've done them, our motives. It is not a judgment for salvation. It's a judgment for rewards. Again, David Guzik writes, we must understand that what we have done will be judged. It is possible to have a saved soul and a wasted life. That statement alone is very powerful. Because Jesus talks about rewards a lot in Scripture. And it's really weird to me because it's almost like some Christians want to downplay that, like, oh, well, you know, it's not about getting rewards. Are you kidding? Man, when I get to heaven, I want rewards. Don't you want rewards when we get to heaven? I mean, Jesus talks about them a lot. That's why he tells us to stay busy, to be doing his word, because there's rewards at the end of the day. But it's possible to have a saved soul and a wasted life. That will be determined at the judgment seat of Christ. 
He says, we must understand that our motives will be judged. This is also important. One can do the right things, but with a wrong heart. In the end, it will be as if they did nothing for the Lord because their motives will not stand up at the judgment seat of Christ. He says, we won't be punished for what was not done rightly. Those things will simply burn up. We will only be rewarded for what remains. Sadly, some will get to heaven thinking they have done great things for God and find out at the judgment seat of Christ that they really did nothing. So I'll say it again because it's huge. Christians will be judged, but it's not a judgment unto salvation. It's a judgment of what we've done and why we did them to determine if we'll get a reward. Our debt, our judgment, the wages for our sin that we owed, that's already paid. Jesus hung on the cross and cried out, it is finished. Hey, telestai in the Greek, paid in full. And Jesus took my judgment, your judgment, for guilt or innocence. He took the punishment, and now God has banged the gavel and said, for those of you who've put your faith in Jesus, you are innocent. You are justified. Best definition I ever heard of the word justified is that God treats us now just as if I'd never sinned. Isn't that amazing? That's why it's good news, guys. Jesus took our punishment. Our works will still be judged to determine what rewards we'll receive. If we didn't do any works, there won't be any rewards. If we did works with the wrong motive, there won't be any rewards. So we need to maintain good works, as the scripture tells us, and we need to do it with the right heart because there's rewards. There's rewards at stake, man. It's crazy. It's like, you know, here on earth, we talk about rewards all the time. And, and I think why people don't like to talk about rewards when it comes to the Bible is because they think all of a sudden, oh, now you're talking about works. Now you're talking about earning God's favor. I'm not talking about earning God's favor for salvation. I'm talking about getting rewards. <laughs> like when my kids come home from school and they say, I got in the Starbucks. Then it somewhere along the way shifted. My daughter stopped talking about the Starbucks to Starbucks. And <laughs> that's her reward now. So if you're a believer, don't let the idea of a judgment frighten you. It should excite you that one day our works are going to be examined. If you haven't given your life to Christ, you do need to hear this, and you need to hear it very soberly. Revelation 20, 15, anyone not found written in the book of life will be cast into the lake of fire. And we've already said this in a previous study. There is no coming back from this. Okay, there's no second chance. You're not consumed immediately. This goes on forever and ever. John Trapp called the eternal aspect of hell another hell in the midst of hell. Henry Alford said, as there is a second and higher life, there is also a second and deeper death. And as after that life, there is no more death, so after that death, there is no more life. John Walbert said, there is no way possible in the Greek language to state more emphatically the everlasting punishment of the lost than the expression forever and ever. It is literally to the ages of ages. That's why 
when Jesus sent out the 70 and they came back and they were all excited. Remember, they were like, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he's like, like, don't rejoice that the demons are subject to you. Rejoice that your name is written in heaven. That's why we rejoice. So is your name written in heaven? Has your name been entered into the registry in heaven? Because a day is coming. This is not a parable. Right? It's, it's not a story. John's not talking about something like there is a day when everyone will stand before the living God. And for those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ, it will be a day of rejoicing. It will be a day of reward. For those who have never had their name entered into the book of life, it will be a day of judgment. And they will be cast into the lake of fire. You can leave here today. You can leave here today knowing that your name has been entered into the book of life. All you have to do is ask Jesus Christ to be your personal Lord and Savior. To say to him, I accept that when you died on the cross, you did that for my sin. And I realize I have a sin nature. I'm not a good person. And there's no way I'm ever going to be good enough to stand in your presence. But because of the work your son did on the cross on my behalf, I choose to believe that and I accept that payment for my sin your life will not only be changed in that moment, your name will be entered into the book of life. And you can know that you know that you know. When you stand before him, he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord.